I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. and subcultures and sub-sub-subcultures. There's science fiction, there's alternative history, there's steampunk, there's hip-hop, and there's chap-hop. There's an anachronistic Victorian gentleman wearing a pith helmet with an orangutan butler dissing a fellow chap-hop artist for parodying rather than engaging with the genre. Dear sir, regarding your recent foray into the rap business and the scene you portray, see, I don't normally approve of war games, but he's buying is what they all say. And by Harry, they might be right. This is hip-hop, not an Elvis night. Shelve this professor impersonation. Let it end now, it's impertinent waiting. You seem a reasonable chap. What you need to do is rap and not parody chap-hop, because that's not proper. Just not What you may quite reasonably ask is going on. Well, over this episode, and the next, because this is part one of a double episode, I'm going to take a really, really deep dive into the world of steampunk. Steampunk is a lot of things. It's an aesthetic, a genre, a fashion, a lifestyle. And to really understand it, to see how influential it is on mainstream popular culture and a whole host of different areas, you need to look at it from several different angles. Which is why I have some very exciting guests lined up across the next two episodes. In this instalment, I'll be talking to two very different professors. Dr. Rachel Bowser is Associate Professor of English at Georgia Gwinnett College in the US and has written extensively about steampunk. Professor Elemental is the Victorian gentleman whose music you've just heard, the chap in the chap hop. He's a hip-hop musician, performer, and voiceover artist, and he provides another very different angle looking at the world of steampunk. So let's try to get one thing settled at the outset. What exactly is steampunk? When I have to describe it to friends who have no idea what it is, or strangers, I tend to say, and uh, I hope this doesn't insult steampunks who've got a very different definition, but I tend to say it's nerds who like dressing up in a cross between science fiction and Victorian costume. Professor Elemental. That's it, it is absolute most basic. Obviously there's loads of angles to it. There's the historical angle and fashion and there's the makers and even sometimes people get really into the sort of politics of it all. But basic, at its very heart, uh, for, uh, particularly in Britain, it varies from country to country I think, but in Britain it's a lovely big inclusive fancy dress party. One of the most fun things about steampunk is how much it resists a nice clean definition. This is Professor Bowser. Among other things, she has edited a great collection of steampunk essays called Like Clockwork. So depending on who I'm talking to, sometimes I say steampunk is like an artistic movement that has a lot of novels and films and artwork and video games. And in other contexts, I might say steampunk is like a maker culture participant movement that features a lot of conventions and convenings and parades where people share 
items that they've made and modified to participate in a steampunk aesthetic. So I think that in either case, what is the overlapping feature is that steampunk is generally characterized by a kind of mashing up of um, things that we don't usually think of as going together. So in the sort of literary genre that often takes the place of Victorian era settings or technologies or or, um, aesthetics combined with the kind of futuristic technologies or innovations that we're more used to seeing in science fiction. Um, And in maker culture or um, sort of performance culture, it maybe takes the form of Um, brass goggles like we might see on a 19th century pilot of a Zeppelin modified so that they have sort of futuristic blue lights and lasers on them as well. So in either case, what we see is a kind of mashing together or hybrid um, creation that takes the markers of two different time periods or two different eras and kind of blends them. Sorry. Oh, is the mic on? Okay, hello. Hello, righto. Well, thank you, Lord Buxley, and I'd like to welcome you to this lecture at the Gentlemen's Club of the Empire. Uh, In front of you, you'll find your brain-o-matic helmets. It's a a marvellous device which will conjure pictures of my exploits directly into your delicate heads. If you'd like to attach the electrodes and then simply insert the spinal syringe. Ah, There we go. This is from a Professor Elemental track, Quest for the Golden Frog, and it's very steampunk. The Victorian setting mashed up with technology that didn't exist in the period. The thing that strikes me as fundamentally and commonly steampunk is this insistence on combining things that otherwise would not seem compatible. So you've got steampunk as a type of genre. There are steampunk books and films, computer games and comics. You can see it as a subgenre of science fiction, if you like, or maybe as something slightly separate. But it's also a much broader world. There is, as we've heard, steampunk music, but there's also steampunk art and design. There are conventions, parades, and other events where people wear elaborate and often meticulously handcrafted costumes. There is a distinct steampunk aesthetic, and it crosses into other areas too, into burlesque and cosplay, circus and street performance. And there's a strong sense of community. I like how broad it is as well. I like that people can find these different things in it. And it really, you know, it really does attract all the people who, who just, you know, didn't belong in other cliques. Or sometimes got bored of other cliques. There are people who are like proper punks, or like me, who are sort of happy b-boys, but never really felt at home in the sort of alpha male environment of rappers or, or goths that, you know, want to branch out a little bit more. Um, and, um, yeah, it's lovely. It's very nice from that point of view. So people know it when they see it, even if it's not always clear exactly what the defining features are. It is, most would agree, about time and technology, if anything. There's a kind of a sense of a Victorian, contemporary, technology-based blend. And where it all comes from is also something that's not really fully agreed on. In literature, anyway, there are a few proposals. That is an issue of much debate. And so I'll just give you a sort of highlight of who I think some people are focused on. Um, a, A common answer for seminal steampunk texts is Bruce Sterling and William Gibson's The Difference Engine, which was published in 1990 and was set in Victorian England, but wants to imagine that there um, is 
widespread computerized technology during that period and wants to imagine how the industrial revolution might have gotten gone differently if computer technology instead of steam technology had been the dominant form. Um, other people, including um, a friend named Mike Pershawn, who wrote a chapter about this in the collection that I edited on steampunk, wants to argue that steampunk really begins um, in a major way in the 70s with Michael Moorcock's The Warlord of the Air. Um, it's a 1971 novel. There certainly are some people who will make the argument that um, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells are really the original steampunk writers because of the way they're thinking about moving technologies through time and combining sort of futuristic imagination with, um, you know, the more familiar settings of their 19th century readers. So there are a lot of different schools of thought on this. What's fairly clear anyway is that the movement was much smaller in the 80s. It began to grow in the 90s and it really took off this century, particularly in the last maybe 15 years or so. In 1999, there was that fairly awful Will Smith film, Wild Wild West, with an American Western steampunk aesthetic. More importantly, in the same year, there was Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's graphic novel, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, with its reimagined group of classic Victorian literary characters. That was made into a film in 2003, and dozens of other films emerged with steampunk influences around this time as well. Do you remember Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman in 2004? Also fairly mediocre. There have also been numerous steampunk novels published over the last 15 years or so, and we'll be talking a little bit more about some of them in the next episode. But China Mieville, for example, published his Perdido Street Station in 2000 with its very inventive blend of fantasy and steampunk. And there were many, many others. Certainly, when I talked to Professor Elemental about his music and about the creation and evolution of the Professor character... It seemed to him, too, that he entered the scene at just precisely the right moment. Yeah, I just did it as a bit of a one-off, a sort of one-off funny little thing. There was a sort of um, Victorian variety show, and a mate of mine I'd been recording with was, was telling me about some of the acts, and it really, it really tickled me. So I went and just, you know, I sort of borrowed a, borrowed a hat and just did it as a one-off thing. And it was like I'd sort of, the character just arrived fully formed. And it was also a way for me to to get over all the things that had bothered me about loving hip-hop, but being really aware that I was, you know, trying to cover up, perhaps sounding a little bit too posh or a bit too white. And actually, as is often the way with artsy things, you sort of find your weakness and capitalise on those things. So, okay, well, I'll be really posh and really white. Um, And then steampunk, coincidentally, just sort of took off at exactly the same time. Like most people, he also finds it hard to pin down precisely why it took off. I have no idea. And talking, inevitably, you talk to all these other steampunk bands, and they all almost say the same thing. They're like, well, we never set out to do this. It just, steampunk came around, people started booking us, and now we're doing songs about airships. And it's sort of the same with me. It just sort of, it arrived sort of magically, and I have no idea what the conditions were. Whatever the precise reason, he wasn't going to question it. So I got, I got really lucky with a music video called Cup of Brown Joy that was on the front page of YouTube for like half an hour and that was enough to kind of get people noticing it then steampunk was blowing up and then loads of gigs started coming my way and I sort of just found found my way into it and and again it was a perfect mix of, te- of still being able to do hip-hop music that I love but finally being able to do it to my kind of tribe because steampunk is incredibly nerdy and I'm incredibly nerdy as well. So I was finally able to talk about stuff on stage that with, with audiences who had the same values and the same sense of humour and the same cultural references as I did. Love a couple. 
I would... Oh, God, yes. Oh, that is gorgeous. I need a cup of the brown stuff, the shade of an acorn, made warm by the same source that I take my cakes from. Using a teapot, a mug or fine china, been hooked up to IVs, they constant supplies, and a trip for my urges might verge on perverted, prefer the brown tea, I'm certain it's worth it. With Sherpas who work hers and use a fresh fountain, I've discerned brews from Peruvian mountains, I've slurped up a... I've become older um, and sort of more eccentric, then he sort of just grows with me, which is quite nice. But weirdly, I think... On record, he's a very... I really go out and out to make him a very distinctive character. But on stage, it tends to be a weird mix of the two of us because I like talking about stuff that isn't steampunk or talking about, you know, events of the day or whatever it might be. So, yeah, increasingly the two of us are melding together and the only way I know where one ends and the other one begins is when my wife tells me to stop talking like Professor Elemental and <laughs> sort my life out. Like, oh, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Whenever I, whenever I get excited, I tend to get more and more professory. <laughs> Basically, my sanity is hanging by a thread at the moment. One midlife crisis away from just permanently wearing a pith helmet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, I don't, I don't What was he doing with it? I don't know. Well, it was never my badger to begin with. <laughs> No, I, I think he's a duke or something, though. He's a great dancer, though, isn't he? Lovely. Okay. So, back to the why. Why has the last decade or so really seen the explosion of interest in steampunk? The explanation that I find most convincing um, is that you see the real rise in popularity of steampunk as tracking with the rise in a certain kind of technological um, aesthetic that I think is recognizable to people as um, the Apple aesthetic, where um, a lot of our new gadgets and items that dominate um, our interaction with technology are characterized by this smooth white exterior um, that we know we're not meant to get inside of, to swap batteries on, to futz around with the interiority of. Um, and that, you know, eventually don't even have any buttons, right? The latest iPhone is doesn't even have a home button, right? Um, steampunk, by contrast, both in its sort of maker culture form and in terms of the objects and things that are featured in its stories and in its films, is uh, much more characterized by cogs on the outside, machinery that is visible, things where you can see the parts moving and working and connecting to each other. Sometimes parts like cogs or whatever on the outside, even if they aren't doing anything, just to be a sort of look of um, the guts of a thing put on the outside or put on the surface. And and I think that connects to the um, kind of ethos of the movement, which is very much a DIY maker kind of tinkerer culture where the people who are invested in it, in a maker movement, and the characters that are featured in the stories are people who make things, people who take parts that are lying about and sort of fit them together and try to create a new object out of the pieces that are available. While the name itself may have been a throwaway label given to the movement in the 80s, there is something punk about it. As well as attracting people from the fringes, there's the centrality of this idea of autonomy and rebellion against modern technology, which excludes its user. You know, the steampunk moniker you never should have was, was sort of uttered by one author as a joke. It was a short tongue-in-cheek letter that the author K.W. Jeter wrote to Locus magazine in 1987. 
drawing a kind of a parallel with the popular cyberpunk genre of the time. Um, was never really meant to invoke a particularly punk sensibility. And, you know, in the way that these things go, many people debate about whether there is ever anything very punk-like about steampunk. But to me, the primacy or the centrality of a DIY or tinkering sensibility gets at that in a way that I find reasonable, right? I do think that um, steampunk is pretty centrally about exercising some um, mastery over technology and about taking things apart and understanding how they work and then repurposing them um, to different ends. Um, So, you know, there's that great um, cyberpunk, there's that great line about cyberpunk, um, the street finds its own use for things. You know, I think it's the same sensibility in steampunk, right? That um, only the the notion of finding your own use for things seems steeped in precisely having the impulse to take something apart, identify what its constitutive parts are, and then reassemble them into a new thing. So to me, that's the punk part um, as an ethos. But there's more to this, too. So in some ways, I think of it as satisfying what is maybe a nostalgia, right? When we're holding our our um, iPhones and using our wireless um, AirPods and even when we were carrying around our MacBook Airs, right? And nostalgia for technology and machines that had a heft and a weight and that we could, like, if we wanted to, see how the parts moved together. And this idea, nostalgia, is key because... Of course, nostalgia can be both a comfort and a dangerous delusion. Make America great again. Take back control and make Britain just like it was in its lovely colonial past. Steampunk is, and has to be, political. But before we talk about the political, I wanted to take a very quick ad break. Firstly, I wanted to remind you that if you are a fan of the show and want to join a wonderful community of like-minded people, you can do so on Patreon. There are lots of great perks to joining up, and it helps me, of course, to make even better episodes for everybody. So just head to patreon.com, so that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n, patreon.com, slash w-t-t-e, or just click on any of the links on the w-t-t-e website as well. Secondly, this podcast is, as you probably know, a member of the wonderful Headstuff Podcast Network. And I wanted to play you a trailer from one of our other shows. This is also a show about literature, so I think you might be interested. This is Chris Fitzgerald from a podcast called Write Stuff. Just letting you know that if you're interested in reading or writing or just listening to interviews with interesting people, tune into Write Stuff and hear interviews with novelists, poets, songwriters, and people involved in the writing and publishing industry. Past episodes are with the likes of Colm Tobin, Donald Ryan, Liz Nugent, Emer McBride, Michael D. Higgins. So listen in. Write stuff. Steampunk is difficult to navigate politically. The fundamental problem is that in celebrating a very particular time, the Victorian era, you can't really escape that era's attitudes and culture, which are by today's standards racist and sexist and homophobic and jingoistic. And you need to think very carefully about how you navigate this. I think it's a particularly a sticky subject for steampunk. Um, as you noted, a lot of the contributors that I've worked with are very attentive to um, the ways in which 
many steampunk authors and um, films sort of center people of color in a way that they would never be centered in um, an actual Victorian context, how they place women in positions of agency and um, reorient what are traditional gender roles in order to give women a lot more sexual agency and economic agency and um, can reimagine the sort of impact of colonial powers. You know, this is an explicit project, of course, of many steampunk authors. Um, and if you go to steampunk conventions or to um, maker events, you the participants um, are more diverse than, um, you know, this is maybe not a particularly good comparison point, but they're certainly more diverse than the general population of academics that I see when I go to my Victorian literature conferences, um, for whatever that's worth. But I, and so here's the but, I do think there is a risk in um, your storylines and your thematics and your symbolism in your novels and in your film and in your cosplay can make an effort of centering people who would have been excluded and allocating power in different sort of ways. But when you are a movement that is um, in fact so heavily defined by an aesthetic embrace that is associated with a very particular period, right? Like it is, we could we could um, go back and forth in all sorts of ways about what makes something steampunk, but very few would dispute that it needs to look Victorian in some way, right? That's a kind of anchoring characteristic. Um, and, and for a lot of people and in a lot of contexts, that aesthetic is always going to signify in a way that is associated with a very particular um, colonial European um, gender regressive kind of sensibility and paradigm. So I don't see how you get around it, right? I think it's one of these things that you have to just name all the time as a problematic set of associations with the look and with the aesthetic as a way to never let it become too invisible. And I think that's the key, you know, create fantastic and inventive Victorian worlds, but don't let the politics become invisible. I was curious how Professor Elemental dealt with this, because it's something that's evident in his music too. So I do hip-hop basically, but I do it in character, and I do a lot of comedy topics, but I still try and make really good, solid hip-hop music. But the problem is, quite early on, it got labelled as a thing called chap-hop. And then I briefly found out, so there was a brief kerfluffle a few years ago, when Michael Gove said he liked chap-hop, which means there was a few articles in newspapers about, oh, chap-hop, it's hip-hop, but for posh twats. And that was a nightmare, as you can imagine, for me, because I'm really left-wing as well. So I'm just, I'm caught in this, I'm sort of pretending to be this imperial colonial character, but with re I've got really left-wing politics. I love hip-hop. I hate the Tories. It's just, it's a mess. The whole thing's crazy. It's chaos. Um, so I've sort of I try and go out of my way to inject a bit of um, my own sort of politics and personality, particularly on stage, just to try and see off, um, you know, getting the wrong kind of audience. I don't want an audience of kind of Britain first Brexiteers coming to my shows. I had a brief period after the Brexit vote where I picked up a few fans I didn't really want, like Michael Gove and like uh, a few people who heard my I'm British song and went, oh, that's what we need, a bit more patriotism. So I had to work really hard to jettison those people um, without being horrible to them, but just to say, no, 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 this is not for you. That's not what this is. <laughs> so I've had to do, I do quite a lot of that on stage and I've made a few songs in that direction. So. <laughs> I begin every sentence with an apology. Sorry that's the case, that's just British politics.
mercy Probably the case with everything in honesty I use ten words when two would do honestly I'm British And that makes me unique At least I think so when I hear you speak See, we used to have an empire But we got a little cocky Like, ha-ha, Johnny Foreigner I'd like to see you stop me And sure enough, we rhubarb crumbled Now in every town, all the drunk teens stumble I'm rather glad, really It made us more humble Come and ask me where I'm from, dear boy I won't mumble I'm British I don't want to be fantastic This is I'm British, one of us most famous songs, a witty celebration of the great things about Britain, which doesn't ignore the other parts. It's not, as a few somewhat confused fans may have thought, a celebration of Britishness in the face of foreign invasion and EU oppression. But at this point I'd just like to take a moment to apologise on behalf of Britain for all the things that we've brought to the world. Simon Cowell, for example, and uh, Jim Davidson, fox hunting, um, black pudding, Racism. But most of all, we're so terribly, terribly sorry about Piers Morgan. Initially, I didn't give it a second thought. Like 12 or 13 years ago, when I started doing this, it was just a fancy dress costume. And then, as you start getting out there into the world and realising what it represented, particularly as I started sort of travelling around, and then I thought, oh, fuck, I need to make a real effort to make sure that I, you know, lay my cards on the table. So then my act got, my, my music stage pretty non-political, but my act on stage got really political uh, and occasionally veered off into, rather than being funny, me just ranting about, I don't know, unions or, or uh, you know, teaching cuts or stuff and seeing people's faces go, this isn't really what I signed up for. I just kind of want you to do your funny tea song, mate. So now I've kind of gone, I've kind of split the difference and there, I, do, I do kind of talk about politics on stage but only if I can justify it with a good joke and actually all my shows now I've got a new or a thing I've been doing over the last few years to keep it fresh is I find a theme for each show and often I try and change it show to show and things like doing a show that's themed around mental health or if you're feeling overwhelmed what you can do to change the world and make a more positive difference I think they're a bit more effective and a bit more in keeping with the professor character there are also other interesting ways in which steampunk can allow people to think through areas which are often neglected in mainstream culture. I'm um, a particular fan of a lot of the short stories in the Steampunk 3 anthology that's edited by the Vandermeers. And I think that there's a lot of authors in there, particularly women authors, who um, are doing a very interesting job thinking about difference and 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 especially different kind of bodies. And I will say that that's an area that I find steampunk to be particularly progressive on. Um, I don't know that it's possible for it to, as much as it wants to, shake off the kind of regressive associations related to racial and gender identity. But I do think that I've seen very impressive things in terms of steampunk and the representation of disability. Um, And uh, one of my colleagues wrote a a wonderful essay about um, the appearance of prosthetics in steampunk literature. And and even more broadly than that, you know, there is a way in which the kind of the notion of combining things and imagining combinations that weren't there before that seems to underpin a lot of steampunk seems to make it possible that for a lot of people's imaginations to be opened about bodies that have different parts attached to them or different kinds of mechanical features attached to them and sort of centering these um, disabled bodies in their stories in new and unique ways. So I think that's worth calling attention to as a particularly progressive feature. So steampunk can be a lot of things to a lot of different people. It has to be political. It can't avoid the specific historic time period it's grounded in. 
But that doesn't mean it can't satirise and laugh at it, that it can't be whimsical and celebratory, while also thoughtful, progressive and inventive. Steampunk, in its many guises, is here to stay. And in part two of this double bill, I'm going to be exploring some of those other weird and wonderful guises. So that's it for another week of Words to That Effect. This is episode 30, which I'm very proud of. A big round number. There's always a nice time to take stock. I think this show has really grown in a lot of ways in the last year and a half or so that it's been going. I have certainly learned a lot. Firstly, however long you think the episode is going to take to make, it will be at least three times that length. Secondly, and more importantly, it's such an amazing feeling when people tell you they've heard the show. It's been so exciting to see the numbers of downloads grow every week. So thank you for being one of those people. And finally, I've learned that if you ask people to be on the show, they are just so incredibly obliging with their time. So that's just been amazing. So to that end, thanks so much to Professor Rachel Bowser and to Professor Elemental for talking to me. Professor Bowser's edited collection on steampunk is called Like Clockwork, Steampunk Pasts, Presents and Futures, and it's available on Amazon and elsewhere, and I'll put a link to it on the WTTE website. All the music on this episode was by Professor Elemental, and there's a huge back catalogue of music you can check out online. Just head to ProfessorElemental.com and have a rummage around, or you can search for them on YouTube, where there are some great music videos as well to accompany the songs. There are links to everything and pictures, full transcripts and lots more at the WTTE website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm on Twitter at CEDread, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Use the hashtag WTTEpodcast if you're talking about the show. And don't forget to check out Patreon for the rewards and bonuses and other nice things at patreon.com slash WTTE. So that's it. I'll see you in two weeks for a whole other side to Steampunk. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.